This is episode number 14, The Rules of the Game, with Reese Hoffa. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohit, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of adoptees and foster care members who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Welcome back to another episode of The Overcoming Odds Podcast. Today's guest is a good friend of mine. He has been referred to as a pillar of consistency. He's a winner of the bronze medal at the 2012 London Olympics. And he is someone who has managed to finish in the top five at the U.S. Outdoor Championships for nine consecutive years. But more importantly, he is an adoptee and someone who has been through his own version of the struggles you face today. Tune in as we talk about what it's like to live in an orphanage, the choices you should be given before your adoption, language, and why it's important to only say things that you mean, reconnecting with your birth family, and what it means to be successful. Without further ado, please welcome Reese Hoffa. If you don't mind, I would like to actually start off by having you share um, the time when your mother got in her car and drove away. I, I know that based on the article that we read, you know, it said that you um, you weren't sure of what was going on. How much of it did, did you and your brother know prior to being dropped off in the playground or the orphanage? And then she left off. Um. I mean, really, that day was like any other day. Um, I think that night my mom went on a date. Um, the next day, we uh, load up into the family car. Uh, we drive to uh, somewhere in downtown Kentucky, and we go to a building we'd never been to before. And I'm like, well, okay, maybe she's got to go do something. Uh, we go into a room. They give us some toys to play with while she is uh, filling out paperwork and, you know, this is kind of oblivious. like, okay, whatever. Um, and then, you know, it kind of gets weird, you know, all of a sudden you're kind of being escorted by four people. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother is immediately separated. And then my mom, like my mom just kind of walks me to the front door and then three people come up behind me and uh, she continues down the stairs and gets in her car. And then, I'm left there in pieces, like, what's going on? And that's where I kind of have a bit of an issue. Like, they don't they don't explain it to you. Like, it's not that your mother doesn't love you and all that kind of thing. It's just they put you in a room. They isolate you. They let you cry it out, get frustrated, be disruptive. And then eventually, once you've tuckered out, which, you know, took almost, you know, several hours, almost all day, um you go on with life <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in an orphanage and you're just like, okay. So, uh, the, the place I was at the, it was a state run place to start off. You're in a, basically a holding room until they figure out, okay, what orphanage are you going to send you to? So you're just in a room with a bunch of bunk beds and, um, you wake up at a particular time, they clothe you, give you a shower, you eat your breakfast. They tell you what activity you're going to do for the day. And, um, and you do this structured, I'm not going to say prison-ish kind of life, but it is kind of like a prison because mm-hmm. you're not really free to do anything. They control everything you do. And um, you try to follow whatever rules they want you to follow and until you figure out what's the next move. And what was kind of confusing about it was my mom did have to come back. They, she figured out, which orphanage to take me to. So we get in the car. I'm like, I'm relieved. I'm like, Oh, thank goodness. This is awesome. Um, you know, and being four years old, I don't really, I'm still oblivious of stuff. Um, we drive down this, it seems like some country road, bunch of trees. We come up to a 
castle-like building. I'm like, oh, we must be going to some kind of fair. You know, you're kind of thinking positive because your mom's back. Um, and then you're isolated again. And then uh, I guess this place has handled this before, so they're like, oh, hey, go play with these kids. And I go play with these kids, and when my mom batted me on the back and got back in her car and drove away, that was the last time I saw her for 18 years. Wow. Yeah, I, could, I can definitely relate because I, I lived in Orphanage myself for three years, starting at nine. So when I was actually nine years old, it was a decision that I had made. So I remember um, walking into some government building in the town that I was at with my sister and essentially, you know, giving up their rights to become um, government property. So, you know, you, br you bring up a good point with regard to you really don't have any freedom. I remember when I first ran away, I ran away twice from the orphanage to go see my mom and my sister and everyone. And both times I got punished, severely punished. So that and the other thing I was wondering was how much physical labor was there within your system? Because in ours, you know, it was it was very similar. You wake, you wake up, first thing you do is chores. Um, then you, you know, have breakfast and then you either go to school or you continue on with the chores. And um, and then after that, you had physical labor. So you'd have to go outside and do things like gardening or building a new shack or whatever was required, essentially. Well, this is what the, like, within the orphanage itself, um, I guess as I was so young, I didn't, uh, they were just, I would have to, like, go to preschool or something. Now, with that said, I when I in our orphanage, they're just sending you out to different families. <clears throat> and on one of those experiences, I was taken on a weekend visit by this this lady, and uh, she took me to her house. She uh, started walking around her home. She gave me uh, Windex and some towels or paper towels, and told me I needed to. To, I had to uh, clean our windows. Then she uh, took me inside, got on a stool. I washed all our dishes. And then I, I just basically cleaned our house for a weekend. Hmm. And, um, you know, she gave me just, you know, it wasn't like it, she didn't feed me or anything. But, you know, she gave me food. But that was my weekend visit. Um, I've been on visits where uh, the relationship was abusive. I went to a home where there were two other, I think it was three other kids. There was like a, one older kid, probably about 13, 14, and then a kid that was nine and another kid that was seven. And me being four, I was like the youngest there. And the, for some, something happened and the, the guy that was taking us on the weekend visit decided he was going to punish us for for some reason and it's hard to describe what what it, what he had us do basically you you kneel and you take your hands and put them behind your back and you hold it until in the air as, as high as you can and mm -hmm. you're not allowed to move it and if you move your hand he, he hits you with a belt oh wow so you know and i tried to hold this position as long as I could. Now, luckily for me, um, I when I went back and I talked to the lady and she asked me how it was, first thing I told her was like, this is what this guy did. This is so, so painful. I don't know why he did it. He kept hitting me with a belt. And obviously that guy never got to, I'm hoping, never got to see another attempt to adopt, adopt another kid. And, of course, they apologized for those kinds of things. Hmm. So, I mean, those, that's just kind of, I mean, the punishments, like, I, I was never specifically punished while I was in the orphanage, the people that ran it. Mm -hmm. um, mine was run by nuns, and they were generally nice, happy people. Hmm. But, um, but you know, you, you always, I guess, I feel like sometimes you just run into some bad situations, and that was one of the bad situations. Most of them were very positive. Um, I've been to a bunch of, you know, got to learn how to ski and ride a bike and swim while I was in the orphanage and um, not much on education because the orphanage I was in, 
basically you just take all the boys of a particular age and you just sleep on cots or like little bed. Um, and I, you know, so there, there's one lady, you know, overseeing, you know, a hundred kids in a auditorium with beds. Mm. And then they send you off to go do whatever. Like I would go to preschool or go to school or whatever. And then I come back, I have dinner and then hang out with my brother. Um, so it was very little interaction with the person overlooking you unless you cause problems. And then, you know, they take you away and given special attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, if you, for, for me, if you ever caused issues, they took you into what I would consider mm-hmm. an isolation room. So for the first couple of days, I mean, I was, I, I was rebelling. So I spent a lot of time in an isolation room. So I basically was in a room where I could sit in a chair hmm. and I could scream bang and do whatever I wanted until I, was done they were done with the punishment so they basically just put you in isolation for periods of time i mean i i think the longest at four i had to be in isolation was for an entire day like eight hours but i got a break i got something to eat but i was just in isolation Mm -hmm. now you had mentioned that you had mentioned the fact how you were separated from your brother so were you separated into kind of like different families were you still at the same orphanage i was i was I was in the same orphanage. So the way our orphanage worked, so not everybody that goes into this is has brothers and sisters. And when they, I guess they didn't realize that I had a brother, so they put me with uh, all the younger kids. So I was in a, a a wing of the orphanage that were for, you know, kids that were like two to five. And we were just in our own wing, and we did kid stuff. Um, obviously, I did not. I didn't take that very well. I didn't like not being. I didn't like not having my brother with me, mm-hmm. so that was in isolation nearly the entire time. And then after about two days, they let me and my brother be together, and I calmed down, and I was much better. So I spent like my first couple days there. I was in isolation the entire time, pretty much. I only got out to go to bed. Basically, it's what it really was because I was just. I didn't know how to deal with the situation. I was, I was, you know, pushing kids and pushing on the people that were in charge. Mm-hmm. In charge, and uh, I was just a handful. And I got out to basically and very short times of recess, but I was in there all the time because I, I, I could not handle that situation. It was because I mean the thing is, no one ever talks to you. No one tells you. No one helps you try to understand and, and breaks it down to the level of a fourth grader with limited communication. Maybe they can use pictures, but they already have like each wing has you know it's a hundred people, hundred kids there having hundred kid issues. When you have a kid that just acts out constantly, the easiest thing for them to do is just put you in isolation. So until and then finally when I was out. Um, I was a little bit easier to manage and I spent less time and they, they could actually put me in like little classes at the orphanage. So you, you go from where you sleep, you eat breakfast, and then you go with a whole group of kids the same age and you do crafts or something. I mean, nothing, nothing great. Mm -hmm. But until I calmed down, I was, I was isolated for a while. I thought it was just me in the orphanage until you know, I calmed down long enough with my brother, and then all of a sudden, I saw all these people that I never saw. Hmm. How do you how do you deal with some of those memories today? Um, it's just, I mean, I obviously I don't. It it makes it better to talk about those situations. That's why I do all the national adoption days, and you know, I I don't talk about that during national adoption days. But when I talk to social workers, um, I impress upon them like it doesn't. I mean. When you're put in an orphanage, I feel like it ages you. That I may have been four, but I maybe could have handled maybe a 10-year-old conversation. Like, sit me down, tell me that everything's okay. I think it was just more of the, the lack of uh, physical um, touch. Mm-hmm. Like, just somebody holding my hand and being 
what I would consider just being nice for a moment and not always having any time I'm having any kind of interaction with an adult um, it's because they need to punish me. Mm. And you know, that, and, and that, 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 that was part of the problem was I needed somebody to basically like give me a hug and tell me everything was okay. But no one never does that. They just, you, they just, you're, you're an issue if they have to come and do something. And you've got to be dealt with, because I mean, I, I think the longer you're in that orphanage situation, the, you get in the system. This is what you got to do. This is so when you see a new kid, say, "Hey, you know, it's okay. This is what you need to do to stay out of trouble." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but until you kind of get used to the system, you don't know what you're supposed to do, and you rebel and you throw stuff and you kick your, you know, food over, and because you just can't handle the situation. <laughs> It's interesting that you say that because I've definitely had, I actually remember my first day going to the orphanage and, you know, I was, I remember I was being given a tour by a kid who was probably five or six, six years older than I was. And he was showing me kind of everything and he took me to the bedroom that I was going to stay out with three other kids. And he said, you know, this is your bed. And he concludes it with, um, essentially telling me not to say anything about what's going on and you know don't run away don't do anything what he thought was um would get me punished and so it's a good point that you bring that up you know with somebody like telling you like how to act so you don't get in trouble and that in mine it sounds like very similar to yours it was um it was very abusive uh i think the only it seemed like that the only way they could teach you discipline was through abuse, physical abuse, and emotional. And so every time, you know, there were instances when, um, like, for example, when I, when I ran away, the, f- the first time it was kind of a conversation that I had with the caregiver, but then the second time I had to have it with the director downstairs, and she, you know, abused me, not in front of anyone, it was just kind of like a one-on-one situation. But there were so many other inst- instances when um, kids would either run away or... One of them used to steal pots and pans from the kitchen and, you know, he would go and jump the fence and sell it to um, pawn shop and then come back. And when he would get caught, the director would make an example of him in front of the whole orphanage. So in front of the entire three families, gather everyone in one room and and beat him in front of all. So that that I was still, um, you know, it took me a little while after I got out of that system to process those memories and the trauma that comes from it. I, I'm, I'm actually amazed that you could run away. Like where, where my orphanage was, if I made any attempt to run away, I don't even know where I would go. I don't know what I would do. Like um, in, in, I think maybe you were a little, like I had a lot of fear um, when I was in the orphanage. Like when I was when I was there, I, I was just everything scared me. <laughs> so the idea, like it was even hard for me to even get out of my bed in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. Like going mm-hmm. in the bathroom was a terrifying experience. And you know, obviously for me, luckily I had a brother um, when I could find him when he was there. Because when you're in, when you're in our system, it was you get every weekend you either go somewhere or you're back in the orphanage. So on the, you know, on the nights or days when my brother wasn't there, that was, that was horrible. So, cause I didn't have anyone that could take me around. Depend and, on. Yeah. And, um, when, and I think that was also part of the problem when I got adopted, me and my brother were separated. Um, I still had those lingering, just fear. Like I'm in a, a very, Comfort. My, my, I was in a great home, but there's always for a, I would say almost three years, I always had fear ever leaving my bed once my parents put me in that bed, and oh. it, and it wasn't like the house I was in. It's just you you go through a little hallway and you're right in the bathroom. Like it took a it took a while for me to be comfortable um, being in a home with my adoptive family. And it wasn't like I was disruptive. It's just, 
there was always this constant fear. Like I, I rarely ventured very far away from our home. Um, I wouldn't go anywhere unless I was accompanied by somebody. Um, I think that was more of the, the psychological things I had to deal with. And then just being comfortable in the environment I was in, just this always feeling odd and out of place at all times. Mm -hmm. would, would you say that's one of the reasons why you didn't call your adoptive parents mom and dad? Or was it because of the fact that you had, you already knew who your family was? And so, you know, kind of like would have been, I guess, disrespectful or. Well, the thing is for, I'd say months, once I was adopted, I, I called my parents, Steve and Kathy. And they eventually just got tired of having me call them Steve and Kathy. Um, I, I wasn't given a choice. Let's put it like this. I wasn't given the choice to call them mom and dad. I had to call them mom and dad. Hmm. So, that, I mean, that, that in lies some of the, you know, other issues. It's just, you know, when you're put into a, you know, orphanage, you have no choice. When you're being adopted... You have a you you have to verbalize that you want to be adopted by these people, but I don't know if I was one hundred percent on board. Like when they my parents, when my parents first asked me if I wanted to be adopted by them, I initially said no, no, I don't want to be adopted here. And then they kind of pressed a little bit, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's fine, I'll, I'll be adopted here. You know, and and they just you know it just. You know, it snowballed. They adopt you, and I keep calling them Steve and Kathy. And they're like, "Why do you keep calling us Steve and Kathy?" And you're, um, we're mom and dad. Mm. And you're like, "Well, all right." But you know, you're right. I, I knew who my mom was. I knew who my dad was. And to call them mom and dad seemed like a portrayal to them. Mm -hmm. So, in a way, it makes words very hollow. Just say it just to you. You say it just to appease somebody, and not necessarily because you mean it one hundred percent. What is your relationship with them now? It's it's good. Um, I how would I describe our relationship? It it's it's good. It's it has its 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 complexities. How about that? Um, I know that I, I you know I call them mom and dad, but when I, let's see, at 11, I asked to uh, leave. I was just not happy there. I couldn't take it anymore. I, and, um, and at that time, they heard my, my reasons why I wanted to leave. And uh, then nothing happened. They just kind of dropped it. Like, okay, well, we heard what you had to say, and you're, you're, you're going to be here. And that was a turning point with with them that just made me well. I'll just do whatever they say to play. I'll play the game, mm -hmm. and I will work to find my own way out. So you know, I did better. I did. A lot, I started doing a lot better in school. I took it more seriously. Like that was a way. Like going to college was a way to leave this environment. And it's not that they were bad people. Don't get me wrong. It's just that sense of being uncomfortable and the idea that they don't fully understand who I am as a person. Uh -huh. Was it was aban abandonment ever a, a role in that situation? Or a fear of being abandoned again? No, I, I don't think I don't think it I, I, I didn't feel like I was abandoned. It's you know, it, it it's kind of like when I live when I you know when I lived with my parents, it was just more like it's almost it almost is like being back in a uh, in the orphanage where I'm in a prison that I can't leave. Mm. I have like you, you, I mean, I could run away, but where would I run away to? Mm -hmm. um, they take care of all my basic needs. Um, but there's that sense that I don't know, you know, I, I got a, you know, I got my, I, have, I like to think I got my fair share of hugs, but the the connection part of it wasn't 100% there. 
Like I have brothers and sisters. I have a great relationship with them, but it's more like I was a visitor in their home. They, mm. I, I was a worker for my dad. Like you know, he had you know three daughters, which are a little bit older. I have an older brother, but my older brother, you know, he was allergic to grass. You know, like he couldn't go outside and do physical labor. So I was relied upon to do the more physical stuff with my dad. And that's just kind of the way I looked at it. Like he adopted a, a, a kid that could do all the physical stuff. If he needed, you know, we're moving logs, we're cutting help. grass. Mm-hmm. He had like, I was the help he most desperately needed because, you know, he has a, a younger son, but he's super, super young. You can't say, okay, I need you to mow all the grass, do the edging, move all these things out of the way to a little kid so it falls on me mm. so mm. that so i i took it as um that you know from my from my father's perspective that i was just his help and my older brother who has his own issues too um just couldn't do those kinds of things that makes sense so well, i was it was just a help like I don't know, and I felt a all throughout my successes. In a way, I felt a resentment from him that this should be one of his own sons that he had to adopt a kid to do all these great things. Mm, that makes sense. Fun fact about both of our adoptions, actually. <laughs> so I was reading how you chose your name in honor of a character, Knight Rider. Yep. I did this. I did a similar thing. Um, I chose my middle name, Michael, because the only American name I knew at the time was Michael Jordan. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so um, I still, you know, tell that story, but I remember sitting down with my mom. She was at the orphanage, and she pulls out a notebook, and she starts writing down all the different names, and she says, hey, you know, we need to pick one for your new middle name. And it had, like, um, Walter, and uh, I don't remember some of the other ones. But as soon as she said Michael, I was like, that's it. That That's the new name because <laughs> that's the only American name I knew. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I wanted to jump into was actually the surge. I know that that's um, a common topic for a lot of people who have been adopted is, you know, finding your actual roots and connecting with them. I, it sounds like you have been able to do that, but take us through the journey of what was that like? What was it like, not only the process of looking for your mom, but then also being able to reconnect with her? Um, to be honest, it was never really to find my mom. It was a lot of my searches when I was little was just to find my brother, just to have somebody that had been through the process with me. So in the beginning, I um, when I was like five or six, I would take the phone and just start punching in random numbers and hoping that I would call my brother. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't I didn't understand how the phone worked. <laughs> and, um, over time, um, I think by some miracle, I remembered what my last name was. So when we I, we moved from Kentucky to Georgia around six years old. Every time we go back for a Christmas holiday, I would like take the phone book and I would search for every Chisholm and look for my brother's name's Lamont and see if there's like a Lamont Chisholm. And never really got any traction with that, but I did understand that maybe there's a possibility that I could call someone with the last name Chisholm and that would start the process of finding, finding him. Mm-hmm. Um, Eventually, and this is in the, in the 90s, you know, the internet starts taking off, and uh, I could start looking up Chisholm's online. Um, I wrote, I don't know, 15 letters to uh, Lamont Chisholm's all over the country. Uh, never got a reply back from any of them. <laughs> so that was, uh, that, was, that was pretty bad. And then, uh, you know, the internet gets a little bit better and, uh, you can actually use search engines. This is pre days like back. I'm not sure if you ever had experienced this with the internet, but back in the day, like if you didn't know the specific URL, uh-huh. there, you could really use the internet. 
So you have to know exactly. You got to go to this particular site with this particular URL. There's no Google. <laughs> so eventually, you know, uh, a search engine was actually created, and this is black. This is back when all emails and stuff was just basically a black screen with uh, green text. Like there was very little color. And eventually, you know, I got to a website where you could punch in the state that you were that you were adopted from and your year of birth. Hmm. And lucky for me, I think there were only two or three people with that actually were that um, posted something. And I went on there and looked at the first one, and it was a girl, so obviously it's not me. And then uh, I don't know what the other one was. And then the, the last one was by a lady named Diana Watts, and um, she has a little description basically saying, you know, was uh, adopted out of Kentucky. Um, his house had burned. He was part of a house fire. And... Um, his name was uh, Maurice Antoine Chisholm, mm. which was my, my name. And, uh, you know, obviously I was, uh, I was floored. Uh-huh. It, uh, it took me a good hour to collect myself enough to be able to just type the most simple message to this lady. Because I just, um, I never thought that I would ever meet anyone in my past ever. I thought I just I'd be forever adopted and never really know who I am as a person. Uh, so I just basically said, you know, Hey, my name is Reese. Um, when I was three, um, I did burn, I didn't burn our house completely down, but I did burn the first floor. And I, uh, just, I apologize for that because, if this was really my mom, she would instantly know, yeah, this is definitely, he, he did that, and yeah. Um, and then I put my, I had a cell phone, put my cell phone, and then my home number, and then my email on there, and told him, just contact me as soon as you can. So I put it up in uh, October. By the end of November, I received a random phone call while studying for my anatomy exam from this lady, <clears throat> And then, you know, like, hello. <laughs> I was a bit annoyed because I'm trying to focus on this. I need to do well. And, you know, she's just like, hey, my name's Diana Watts. Um, I'm looking for Reese Hoffa. And in there, I think we talked for at least an hour. And then uh, at the end of that conversation, it took me at least three hours. I'm a bit of a pacer, so I went to a, a track and probably walked four miles <laughs> trying to process what had just happened. Mm -hmm. and, uh, she said she'd give me a, this was a Saturday and, you know, obviously I have track and she was going to call me the following Saturday. So that was the longest week of my entire life, just waiting to hear back from this lady. And uh, we started there and she told me she lived in Indiana and that she, uh, and this is November. She's like, Hey, I'd love to, fly you out to Indiana to meet and I was overjoyed and um, obviously I had I had to call my adoptive parents and um, you know my mom was shaken up by it but she was she was happy that uh, I had found her and uh, she obviously was like hey don't forget about us and I'm like I, you know, there's no way that's gonna happen and uh I think it was uh, December the 28th, got on a plane and flew to Indiana, and it, it, it's eerie. Like, I'm walking, I get, on, I get off the plane, I'm walking by baggage claim, and the moment I saw her, I was like, yeah, that's my mom. Wow. And she didn't, she didn't introduce me, I'm like, uh, hey, and just a random lady, I'm just like, hey, my name is Reed. <laughs> Are you Diana? And she's like, yes. And uh, I gave her a hug, and we uh, get in the car, and we go to her house, and she uh, brings out old baby pictures, and we just start reconnecting at that moment. That's amazing. Did you ever figure yep. out why you were giving up? I do. Um, so, and it's a bit of a sad story. So my mom had her first child at 14. Then she had me at 16, 
and apparently my father had a a proclivity for uh, I guess being um, a, I guess I don't know a pedophile because he was 26 in a relationship with a 13 year old mm-hmm. um, and had a father of two children. I didn't know this. I mean, you don't know you don't notice this as a kid. You don't know how old your parents are. Right. She ended up having getting pregnant. I guess in middle school, she finished high school. Uh, she finished, and she basically said, "You know, hey, I have two kids. I have a high school diploma. Kids are, you know, I couldn't afford to to have kids. I could like I could not raise you guys. So I she made a decision with her uh, her mom, my grandmother." that the best thing for us to give us the best chance to succeed in life was to put us up for adoption. And she says she has like a audio recording of that conversation with my grandmother and herself and going over that entire process of her finally saying, okay, we're going to do this. And uh, I, you know, when I saw her, I was like, you know, I'm sorry, I burned down the house. I didn't mean to do that. And she's like, well, that was, that did not play into why we're put up for adoption the just life in general was the reason Mm. that's good that at least it was you know like that because so when i was reading the um one of the articles that was explaining your story you know i i got the message that it sounded like you were put up for adoption for burning a house or a floor of the house and i was like man that is so unfortunate you know, well, going the... eighteen years of your life mm-hmm. thinking that was the reason, and you know, the, and and maybe that was the reason it made it somewhat easier to go through that process. Is yeah. the reason I'm here is it's my fault. Mm-hmm. I, I burned down our house. We didn't have a place to live. She had to put us up for adoption because we had nowhere to go. That made that transition easier. I think it would have been a lot tougher for me. If I had known that my mom put me up for adoption because of financial reasons, because as a child you can justify, well, I won't eat, I won't eat anything. Uh-huh. I will, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I'd rather be here. It's a lot easier that I did something bad and I'm being punished for bad behavior, which is kind of reinforced what you see when you're in an orphanage. Is like you do something bad, you're getting punished for it. Yes, absolutely. So it, it, easier to conceptualize that than, well, you know, because it's, for me, it would have been tough to like, well, that means that she doesn't really love me that much that for she's being selfish in giving me up. Now hearing this when you're in your twenties, it totally makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. But at a very young age, you're a little bit less, you're a little irrational and you would not take that as well. So in, in some ways I'm, glad it happened like that where I put more of the blame on myself instead of I'd just be constantly blaming her and I'm not sure if it was an opportunity to meet her if I would have wanted to because now I just I'm like I'm thankful for what she did like I'm glad that you made a you know big girl decision in terms of giving these kids up to give them a better life because you know ultimately in my case it paid off do you have any recommendations or things that people should be aware of when they start this journey of trying to find their birth parents? Was there anything, any like red flags or anything that you found along the way that you kind of took a step back and said, huh, I wish I had known about this? Well, when you're searching and finding your parents, um, you have to take into consideration the feeling of the, what I would consider my, my parents and Kathy and Steve, their feelings on that. Like there is a fear. And I mean, my mom, you know, she's this, she has this fear that when this lady who's your birth mom comes into your life, that you're going to cut that other people that raised you and supported you and, and helped you get where you're at, that they're going to cut them out and, just giving them that reassurance is uh, very important. My, I, I feel like my mom took me finding my mom a lot better than my dad did. My dad completely thought it was a negative situation. 
he was 100% dead set against me having any kind of interaction with her because he thought of her as being the devil. Like who, who, who does that to their kid? Who gives her kid up? Mm -hmm. You know, you make it, you make it work in a way. Um, so like when I, I, so I met her my junior year in college, either saw, yeah, I think it was my junior year in college. So, uh, when I finally graduated, you know, I I was like, Hey, I, I think it would be great for you to, if you could do it, come and watch me graduate college, kind of a putting a cherry on top of her decision. Like because of the decision you made, not only am I thriving, I'm about to graduate from college, which I would, you know, somewhat consider what every parent wants from their child is like, Mm -hmm. they, they go to college, they graduate from college and now they have this, they have a, then now they can start making life of their own. Mm -hmm. So, um, I thought that was great. And, you know, my, my dad, I guess did the best he could hiding his feelings on that. When I got married, I asked her to come and that causes, you know, more drama and this kind of stuff. I, you just have to take the feelings of the people and, you know, I, I guess I needed to verbalize to my adoptive parents, you know, it's not, it's not, I'm not doing these things because I'm trying to cut you out of my life. It's just, in some ways, rewarding the decision, a very tough decision from a lady that for 18 years had no idea what was going on. Mm. And that for all she knew, I could have been adopted by the world's worst family and gone you know, in prison and, and not doing anything productive with my life. Instead, she gets some absolutely incredible news. Like, not only I'm going to college, I'm this really good track and field athlete. Um, I graduated. I mean, she follows my career religiously as a, you know, going to multiple Olympics and and doing great things. Um, With that said, um, my birth mom and and I, we don't talk as much um, as I would like to now it's just um it's hard to i I never when i got reunited with her i never put her in the mom category that's the way i would put it Mm. she's just a friend that i know that was a part of my life um and i think that's where we're at comfortable wise like if i don't get to talk to her like i mean one time, you know, I went like a year without talking to her, and um, I don't know how comfortable she was with that, but I think in some ways you got to understand, like, my life and everything in terms of decisions goes through, you know, like my wife and my adoptive family, mm-hmm. and I can't, like, it would be wrong to make you a priority when you gave up that that kind of privilege. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, so I actually didn't know this. You had mentioned the fact how you did track and field in college. So when when did the desire to pursue shot putting evolve? It um, you know I tried um, shot put for the first time when I was I think like in third or fourth grade. Our PE teacher brought a shot put out during the Olympics to let everybody try to throw a shot. I thought, this is pretty interesting. But um, at the time, I thought, well, I'm going to be a football player, so it doesn't really matter. And I played baseball. <laughs> and um, my in eighth grade, um, I tried shot again. Like They're like, hey, we need shot putters. I'm like, I'll do shot, but I was playing baseball. And they made it work with my schedule. Like, I could throw a shot, and then i go to the baseball game and do what I really liked. And I wasn't really that good. I never won anything in, in eighth grade. <laughs> I think the best I ever finished was like fourth. And that was like a miracle throw. Most of the time I was maybe eighth and ninth. I was not a very good shot putter. And then two years later, my junior year, I uh, I quit baseball. Just once you go from middle school to high school, it starts getting real political. And you got to know the right people and do the right things and donate the right money. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't think that was the, the best way to uh, – have a team. So I, um, I had a, a weight coach that was like, Hey, you know, why don't you do shot 
and he was on me from you know my freshman year to where I got there. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do I'll do shot put. And I started throwing, and I was okay. But I just started progressing so fast, and I think a lot I contribute a lot of that to just I've done a lot of sports, so I just know how to move my body. I got you know I got really good really quick. Won a state championship. Loved the way that felt, winning a state championship. It was more on me. I didn't have to worry about a teammate um, doing something to help me win. And uh, that's kind of where it started. And I just kept everything real small. I just want to be the best shot putter at my school. And then maybe the best in the county. And then, okay, best in the state. And then maybe I can be the best in the nation. And just work the goals from there. I didn't think I'd be an Olympian. Like, it took uh, a year out of college before I even thought maybe I could make an Olympic team. Huh. So I just, I just kept working at it. Like um, my junior year, I went to the Olympic trials, got six. And, but the people in front of me, I've thought they would be there forever. I mean, there are five other people that you have to beat just to make the Olympic team. And those guys are a lot bigger, stronger than me, but I started chipping away at it and, you know, by the second year out and make my first world championship team. And when that happened, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm definitely good enough to make an Olympic team the next year. And I did. And I just, I just kept going. That's fascinating. How do you, how do you feel that passion right now? Like I'm curious and the area that I want to focus on is kind of the, the routine that you set for yourself so that you can stay focused and consistent with your performance. Yeah. Um, well, my routine is I, I never really look back at past accomplishments. Like, I feel like every, when I, when I was throwing, um, I just looked at it as I have to look at every year I have to prove myself again. So I got to continue to work hard, pay attention to the small details. And if I do that enough times throughout a given year, I will be very successful. So, and, you know, obviously that takes a, a wear and tear on the body when, and just on relationships. I can't tell you how many Mother's Days, Father's Days, anniversaries, birthday parties um, that I've missed because I have to be somewhere to throw. Mm-hmm. And lucky for me, I, you know, I have, you know, the, the greatest wife in the world that understands that, you know, she's willing to sacrifice my time so that I can go chase a dream. And um, I will be forever grateful for the sacrifices that she's made because I don't know, I don't know how, like when she's gone, I, I get edgy. Like, why is she not here? <laughs> um, you know, when I'm doing it, when I'm gone for three months in Europe because I need to do X amount of competitions, you know, we make it work. We do the Skype and we phone call and email and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't seem that bad, but you know, you you make the sacrifices that need to be made, and whenever you have an opportunity where you can do something with somebody that you care about, you just make it happen. That's that's phenomenal. I I love hearing it from people who are going after their dream because I think, especially in today's society, we have a a bit of a problem where people tend to um, sit back on what's comfortable. But then you, you know, I I have a lot of friends like that, that pursue or are currently in jobs, which they don't like. So that's the kind of um, the central topic for any conversation. And when I give them the advice of, you know, hey, you just have to stop doing it and go after what it is that you want to do. Then there is that fear and uncertainty that settles in saying, well, you know, what if I don't make money? What if I don't do this? What if it doesn't work out? Um, so I would like to know when you had first started this and started doing it seriously, did you have a job on the side? Um, what was your think kind of thought process throughout it? You know, did you think that in X number of months or a year, I'll be able to support myself through this? So when I, when I first started, um, you see, there was in the, I graduated college in 2002, so I had that whole rest of the 2002 year to go. Um, didn't really, I, I spent more money than I actually made throwing, uh, just going to competitions and trying to hone my craft. 
And uh, so I had a job at a place called uh, Dial America where I would uh, answer customer service calls for Bank of America, uh, take refinance questions or help people with refinancing through Chase Manhattan mm-hmm. and uh, sold magazines through the computer, through Dell America. And I did that for, you know, a year and a half. And uh, I made my first world championship team the next year, 2003. And when I made that team, I was like, okay, um, right before I, right when I made the team, I went in and, and quit my job and said, okay, I'm going to go to Europe for three months. I think it was almost, almost four. And I need to make enough money where I don't have to throw for an entire year. I can support myself as a thrower. And uh, that year, um, I was able to make take home after I paid my agent and did taxes and stuff. I think I made um, 11 grand. And that was just enough <laughs> to cover my rent. I had it. My rent was $150 a month. Oh, and, wow. That would be nice to have now. Yeah, I know. And uh, I think uh, with that, with everything, all tax and tip with like all utilities and internet and, and all that stuff, I think it came out to about two, 210 sharing with five people in a house. Mm-hmm. So I basically lived on $210 uh, a month. In my eleven hundred dollars that I made, allowed me to make it to the Olympic trials in two thousand four, and it also helped that I won a silver in two thousand uh, World Indoor Silver. Um, but by when I by the time I made the Olympic team in two thousand four, um, I didn't have to worry about money. Like as long as I didn't buy a brand new car or do anything crazy <laughs> just given the current lifestyle i'm in um i could be um i could be rich poor whereas like what i what i consider rich poor is like if i wanted to go to burger king and get burger king for uh dinner every day i could do that <laughs> and still be comfortable and you know i couldn't do much past that but just that idea that because when, when you're first doing it like um I would split costs to go to Sam's and we buy a ton of hamburgers and I would buy, I bought uh, six water bottles and I used those six water bottles for the entire year. Like I didn't have enough money to actually buy a liter and a half water mm-hmm. at will, but I had, an, I can buy about six of them. I got a deal on it. So I had these six and I, I drank water and uh, ate George Furman, ham, George Foreman hamburgers, <laughs> with government cheese, but that allowed me to, to live rich poor where when after 2004 I could go and I could go to a actual, you know, go to a restaurant and actually like order food and not have to like, okay, I got, I can spend $12 and that's my budget. That's, that's what I can do. I could, I could go and get whatever I want. I could get a beer with it, you know, that kind of thing and, and not even feel no bad about an eye. It's like, I'm still covered. And, uh, and and that was awesome. Wow. And I just kept I just kept progressing from there. So I went from like ten to uh, two thousand four. I made uh, eighty four thousand dollars. I was just like, holy crap! I'm rich now. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to go up from there. And that, that's and I just kept that attitude that you always got to be hungry. And that's why I could. That's how I I did it. That's good. Do you have any advice for those who are just starting off and going after their dreams? Anything that they should be aware of? If, if you're going to go after your dreams, you have to realize you're going to have to make some sacrifices. Um, and sometimes it's all you have is the dream. You don't get to do the other peripheral stuff. You don't get to go on a vacation. You, you don't get to go out and party if you do go out and party, you're going to just be there. If it's just, if it's more important for you to be at a party, you just got to be at the party. You don't get to have any fun. And sometimes, um, in, if it is your dream, then the sad that it won't be really considered a sacrifice because it's just part of the process. Mm. So that, that's the way I approached it. It's just part of the process. Oh, I can't, you know, I have to be very careful with my body. You know, I can eat 
X amount of food, but, you know, alcohol and all that kind of stuff. And um, I have to stretch and do all these little things every single day. Like, it's your job. And, then, and if it is your dream, it is your job. You live the dream every day. That's That's the thing about the dream is every waking moment you're thinking about the dream. How do I nurture that dream so that it can be a reality? And uh, everything outside of it is something that you sometimes have to sacrifice. And hopefully you're surrounding yourself with like-minded, driven people, and then it doesn't seem that big of a deal. Wow. That's that's a very good advice because that's, you know, that's the kind of um, mindset that I've been trying to create for myself for a couple of years now. And there's so many things that I learned throughout the process. But environment, it's a huge factor. And, you know, I used to think that it's, let's say, let's say you're living in a household with people who aren't going after their dreams. And you think that by going to the office and working with people who are, they'll solve it all. But no, what I figured out is that if you fall back on the time when you're with people who aren't going after it, you will become part of it. That their identities will become a part of you. Even if it's not a dominating part, they're still going to be a part of it. So at all times, it sounds like you have to surround yourself with those who are doing it. So that way you can um, just feel motivated and know that there is a possibility of you hitting your, your goals and living your dream. It's true. <laughs> I mean, I wish it was. I wish it was easy to just go after a dream, but unfortunately, dreams are tough, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just—they're so tough, and they wear you down. And for me, I—I I was once I kind of got off the uh, the carousel or the train of trying to be the world's best at throwing the shot put. In some ways, it was. Um, for a year you feel lost and then eventually you just kind of figure out what's the next big thing. So how, how did, how did, how did you respond to the criticism around you? I'm assuming that you've had, and you, we always do at all times whenever we're trying to do something different, but in your, based on your experience, when people said, Oh, you know, you can't make money doing this. There's no way you can make a lifestyle. How did you persevere through that? It's just more of a, a blind self-belief. Um, trying to convince my parents after, you know, four and a half, five years of college that I'm not going to use my degree, that I'm going to go and pursue a throwing career, that's a tough ask. Um, they're like, well, you, you spent a lot of time in college to do something, and now you're deciding that you don't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, I just... I I showed them the very best, you know, Michael Johnson, Carl Lewis, Mary <laughs> Jones at the time. Like, these guys make millions of dollars a year. You can make money doing this. No, I didn't show them what a shot putter made because <laughs> uh, shot putters don't make any money at the time. But I tried to show them, yeah, you can. You just uh, you got to be really good at what you're doing. And I think they, you know, my dad was like, all right, I guess there, there's a possibility, but you know he, he's he's not naive. He like he looks at where I'm at, like, well, you're not going to these meets. Where how are you going to make money at it? So you just uh, you just start letting him in a little bit in the world, like, oh hey, you know, you, you try to glorify it a little bit to to prove to him that you can. And uh, you know, even when I first started, I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of people thinking. You're a nobody. You're not even in the top ten in the world. When I first started, I was number thirty-seven in the world in two thousand and two. I was nothing. But as I started making teams and being more consistent, uh, I started gradually making believers out of people. When you first, when you get your first international medal, people start believing a little bit more. Like, oh, maybe it's not a fluke. Mm-hmm. And then when you don't go anywhere for a very long time, that uh, that helps also. So just blinding consistency and just being 100% naive to the situation is how you convince not only yourself but sometimes others. Like, oh, yeah, I could totally do that. 
I'm just a good, you know, even when I wasn't. Like, I, I, I was that saying, when you fake it until you make it, I faked it hard. But I faked it in my own little, my own special way. Like, I couldn't fake it with a fancy car. I had to just fake it because, like, oh, hey, um, yeah, I can't do this because I'm, I'm going to Poland. And that just gives a little bit of validity. Like, you're not just doing it in San Diego. You're, like, going, oh, i got to go overseas. <laughs> Even though I'm not making any money doing it, but at least they think that you might be. How are you able to gut, gut check yourself in something like this? Because, you know, what I'm learning throughout all this is that there seems to be, or there may be in some people, that it's almost like insanity or illusion, pursuing something that, you know, won't result in things. So how, what um, metrics or how, how do you do this to essentially um, check whether you're on the right path and whether some of the things that you're doing now will actually result in the things that you want them to? Really, the, when I first started out, it was, can I survive doing this? Um, can because if if I in two thousand and three if I went over to Europe, you know, barely made any money, I would have retired in two thousand three. I would have been gone. I would have taken my degree and I would have been, become a PE teacher. And I think a lot of it's got to do with just luck and self belief. But it was just I was I was crazy. Who quits a job that's paying the bills and says, okay, I'm going to take this amount of months, and there's no guarantee I can go back and get that job again. Mm-hmm. But um, I took a chance. I said, if I'm going to do this, I can't have the idea that I'm going back to a job. I can't have anything anchoring me to what I would consider the past. I have to be looking forward, and I have to be doing stuff that's make making sure that I'm 100% focused on that. Um, so... I, I just I, I just I jumped in with everything that I had to to make it work because I, I wanted to make it work and I and, and the thing is I have no control over if it's going to work or not. It's taking advantage of situations and opportunities that come away. Like my first couple my first couple competitions in Europe in 2003 when I was trying to make it didn't go very well. I think I made. You know, those three competitions I made four hundred bucks, and yeah, that's probably that's that's um, you know basically two months of rent that I could use with that, but that's not going to get me all the way. I have twelve uh, now. I have you know um, ten more months ten that more I months have to take care of. Yeah, yeah, I got to take care of ten more months. So you know, I went to a meeting in uh, Italy, and everyone wasn't doing very well. I I mustered up a great throw and all of a sudden I make you know four thousand dollars. Like okay, there you go. That, that's good for a while. You know, it's just like you got to You know, <clears throat> it could have been down on myself not doing well in the first couple, but I was given an opportunity at one meet that brought in four thousand dollars, and that four thousand dollars going to cover me a lot longer than the four hundred. And you start piecing it together. Okay, well, how much money do I? How much can I live on? How much do I need for food? Uh-huh. How much gas? You know, just you think of it in that kind of context, and you put all your chips together. And if it works, great. If not, you said I gave it everything I got, everything I had. I gave it one hundred percent. It's just not meant to be, and I, I, I embrace that reality that I got to give it everything I have. No excuses. If it doesn't work out, then I gave it everything I have. I'm not. I'm not meant to be a thrower. Uh-huh. And I, I retire and I, I become a, P, a PE teacher and I teach kids how to play football and a little bit of shot put. Hmm. This is a question we ask all of our guests and it is, in a situation where odds are completely against you, what are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to? Um, I always believe in myself. I... I I mean, odds have always been against me. <laughs> so I've always, what's helped me become successful is I believe more in myself than the people making the odds. Um, when I 
I shouldn't have been a collegiate shot putter. It, everybody told me that I that it's no way I'm never going to be big enough. I'm never going to be strong enough to make a 16 pound ball go far enough to be competitive as a collegiate thrower. I just believed that they're wrong, that I can do this and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to show them. And I did. And it, it worked out. Um, even my training partner, when I first got done with college said, you're never going to be able to throw 70 feet. You just, you're, you're never going to be able to get the technique to do that. But I just decided, you know, I can, I can do this. You're, you're strong and powerful now, but maybe I, maybe I can need to look at it from a different perspective. Like it's a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And I just, I kept working at it. And, you know, when you finally do it in, you know, three years, they look at you in awe, like in shock, like, Oh, Wow, I uh, I didn't think that was even possible. I think sometimes you just put people put impossible on a pedestal. Like if if someone says it's impossible, I got to believe it. Or if someone says it's impossible, you got you can always have the option of saying no, it's not, and I'm going to show you why it's not impossible. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. As Reese had mentioned, if you decide to go after your dreams. You must believe in yourself, listen to the inner voice, and don't put impossible on the pedestal. Feel free to share your progress with us by tagging us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We would love to hear from you and help you achieve your dreams in any way possible. Also, stay tuned as we will soon be releasing details regarding our upcoming event, Hear Me Now an opportunity for you to connect with hundreds of adoptees and foster care youth who have all experienced their own version of your current or past struggles. Once again, thank you all for listening to today's episode. We hope you have a fantastic day. Till next time.